Hello, I'm Dr. Sarah Jarvis. Welcome to the Hepcast, a podcast series about the people fighting to eliminate hepatitis C, a unrecognized, perhaps not entirely silent killer that affects 71 million people worldwide, most of whom are unaware of their diagnosis. They can live with very few symptoms they recognize, but left undiagnosed, they're at risk of liver cirrhosis and liver cancer. In our first episode, we'll explore how we can reach the 58 million people who are living with hepatitis C but who haven't been diagnosed, and explore how we can ensure that the most underserved communities are linked to care. I'm joined by three inspiring panelists to shed a light on the importance of engaging those communities most at risk of hepatitis C, and to discuss how we can overcome the barriers that these communities face in accessing care. I'm absolutely delighted to be joined today by three very special guests. First, we have Kerry James. He's the CEO of the World Hepatitis Alliance that, funnily enough, with the name World, is an international organization. They're dedicated to advocacy and awareness around the elimination of viral hepatitis. But Kerry has decades of experience, not just in the viral hepatitis sphere, but also working in HIV. And we'll perhaps touch briefly on that later and see how that relates to his work in hepatitis. I'm delighted to be joined by Professor Carla Trelaw. She's Director of the Centre for Social Research in Health and the Social Policy Research Centre at the University of New South Wales in Sydney. And she works extensively with key at-risk populations. That includes people in prison, people who inject drugs, and Aboriginal communities. Most importantly, we have the voice of somebody with lived experience of hepatitis C. Tony McClure is a peer prison educator and he works on behalf of the Hepatitis C Trust, including in prisons across London. And Tony, I'd like to turn to you first. I'd like to know when you first knew that you were living with hepatitis C. My actual clarity around that isn't 100% because I'd kind of swung in and out of detoxes a few times. So I was in a drug and alcohol rehabilitation program in the community. So you would attend groups and that would enable you to be on a methadone prescription. And I tested positive for antibodies for hep C, late 99, early 2000-ish. And what did you know about hepatitis C at the time you were diagnosed? Personally, I knew absolutely nothing. There'd been some things said between uh, users and kind of on the street, there was a few people I knew that had hepatitis C, but back then, very, very little. Unfortunately, that's very much been my experience as well. When I've diagnosed patients, it, it often comes as a complete shock to them. And what were you told at the time about the implications? My actual experience at the time was certainly not what it has been later. It's very different now. Back then, I think the information that people had was also very minimal. And I don't think people in the place that I was diagnosed had up-to-date knowledge and I was told that I was positive for antibodies and that I needed to come back in six weeks for a blood test to test for the virus. I felt very confused. I felt very unsupported. There wasn't any particular follow-up. I didn't actually go back for my um, six-week full blood count because it wasn't made to feel like it was important. I felt unsupported and not given enough information to make a, a decision. My lifestyle was very chaotic, but I was able to manage things given enough information to feel that it was of value. And it wasn't seen in my eyes at the time as something that was of great value. Okay, thank you. 
I'll come back to you, so please stay with us. But Carla, I'd like to come to you specifically about Tony's comment there that he said at the time he really wasn't given much information and that he felt that perhaps he wasn't in the the right environment, maybe didn't see the right specialists. I know that you work with very many marginalised groups. Is that your experience as well? We do research with people at risk or living with hep C and and also track the international literature. And I think that experience is is unfortunately really common, that people have very poor diagnosis experiences and are given unclear information or incorrect information and often with a layer of judgment as well. And and the notion of the stigma that accompanies hepatitis C and drug use and people who use drugs is saturated through the Australian, UK and other international literatures about the experience of getting diagnosed, living with, approaching treatment decisions and, and so on throughout the care cascade. It's interesting you say that because you're absolutely right, this idea that people who inject drugs, there is a stigma around it. Now, clearly, however, you work with a lot of other vulnerable groups as well, for instance, Indigenous populations in Australia. Do you think they have a lot in common, these perhaps marginalised groups, in terms of the challenges they face? Yeah, and a stigma is a really complex subject to dive into. And what we know also from our research and, and around the world is that the phenomena of layering of stigma. So there's numbers of identities or attributes or practices that attract social stigma. So being a woman who injects drugs, being an Aboriginal person who injects drugs, these other identities uh, layer in the complexity of stigma and, and make it even more difficult for people to reach out to access the care and support they need. I'd like to come to you, Kerry, please, if I may, and just touch on that idea that things have changed. Tell us about your role in the World Hepatitis Alliance and perhaps why you became involved in it. Things are changing. I mean, the World Hepatitis Alliance was founded by people living with viral hepatitis in 2007 because hepatitis was widely ignored, both on global health and in most health systems. So a small group of very committed people living with viral hepatitis around the world began the fight to change on a global level the recognition and the action around viral hepatitis with organizations like the United Nations and the World Health Organization, and really to support the community organizations that existed worldwide. And their passion and drive paid off really quickly. Like by 2007, the first resolution designated hep C as a global health threat was passed. And that same year, World Hepatitis Day became an officially recognized day. And of course, after that, there was the commitment by every member country of the World Health Organization to eliminate viral hepatitis by 2030. So we have come a long way in many ways. And you know, not to mention that we now have curative therapies, which are much better tolerated than the old ones. And they're really offering hope to people who felt very little hope before. But obviously, we still have a very long way to go. You know, most countries aren't on track to meet those 2030 targets. And stigma is really something that blights the lives of people living with hepatitis C around the world. You know, we really have to increase access to those curative therapies and do a much better job at finding and diagnosing the missing millions of people around the world who are living with hepatitis C, are unaware of it, and could very well die as a result. So I'm going to ask all of you, because you all have different perspectives, what kind of challenges people who use drugs or people in prison specifically face um, when they're accessing health services? I'll come to you first, if I may, Carla, because you talked about this this layering of stigma, which actually even to me is is something new. Yeah, right. You know, stigma just 
doesn't occur, right? It's a it's a build up of messages that people see and hear and perceive around them. And we know that when people walk into a health service, as Tony described, they're they're there because they value their health and they want to do something positive for their lives. And to have a a health worker or or someone in that space say or indicate you're not really the type of person we want here or we don't take what you're you're presenting for, we don't see that as important. It's, it's kind of antithetical to what a health service should be, which is about providing care and supporting people to achieve their goals for their health. So to understand stigma, we need to think about the ways in which it's generated, not just between people as an interaction, but how it it exists in our policies and procedures, the way services and organisations work and, and are organised, and in our um, larger structural messages around in, in media, in the way laws and regulations are formed that really place people with infections or people who use drugs in, in very marginal positions then as, as not credible, as not a legitimate patient to look after. And it's a complex thing to unpack, understand and, and know what to do about when you're uh, someone living with hepatitis C or someone who uses drugs trying to reach out to a health service to get what you want and what you need to promote and protect your health. Kerry, can I come to, to you and ask, is this is this a worldwide phenomenon? Is this something that is well recognised at the World Hepatitis Alliance? Unfortunately, yes, it is. Stigma related to hepatitis C is widespread, if not universal, around the world. The World Hepatitis Alliance has over 300 members in just under 100 countries, and to varying degrees, all of them would report that stigma is a persistent and damaging issue in their countries and in their communities. You've worked extensively, of course, with people affected by HIV and AIDS as well. Are there, are there parallels that you can draw in your work in the two areas? Many of the communities which are disproportionately affected by HIV are exactly the same communities which are disproportionately affected by hepatitis. And it's estimated that there are about 3 million people worldwide who are living with both conditions. You know, in some places like Eastern Europe, the rates are higher for co-infection. In some communities, like people who inject drugs, you know, co-infection rates can be as high as, you know, over 90%. And we know that people with co-infection who aren't on HIV treatment can face a much faster progression of the conditions caused by hepatitis like cirrhosis and other forms of liver disease. So it's a big, um, it's a pretty big issue. Um, and as Carla mentioned before, they often experience a layering of stigma, you know, stigma associated with HIV, stigma associated with hepatitis C, and depending on the individual, stigma related to drug use, you know, sexual orientation, or just their status in society. My perspective as a GP is that we've really come a very long way in terms of HIV and AIDS. And I think that's partly been driven by increased public awareness that actually anybody can be at risk and that it's not just people who inject drugs. It's not just men who have sex with men, that there are all sorts of risk factors there. But also partly, I think, by the availability of better treatments and by the fact that really we we now see HIV and AIDS as a sort of long-term limiting condition that people can have a very often a normal life expectancy. Do you think that we've seen a similar shift in attitude towards hepatitis C or are we not there yet? Are we even on the journey? Well, we're definitely on the journey, but we still have a long way to go until we reach the destination. I mean, awareness of hepatitis C is still extremely low. You know, knowledge of the new curative therapies are extremely low, um, even in the communities that really need them. You know, stigma is really driven by a lack of information and fear. So the more people who have the correct information about hepatitis C, 
and that it can be cured, hopefully the less stigma people living with hepatitis C will face. And the more people with or have been cured of hepatitis C, the more that they are visible and telling their stories, you know, the more people will see that they're people just like themselves and the more empathy and understanding they will have for them. Um, and that will make a huge difference. Tony, if I could come back to you, can I just start at sort of a little bit further on in your journey? What was the prompt that encouraged you to begin treatment? I was very lucky. I had a friend and I saw the transformation in his life, having cleared the hep C with the new treatments. And when you say the change in his life, because of course, we often think of hep C as kind of a, a silent disease. A lot of people don't know they've got it. How much difference did being cured make to you? I think the terminology as well around hep C really needs looking at. So I think, as you've rightly said, it's thought of as a, a silent disease. Um, but when you combine hep C with um, drug using, there can be a lot of symptoms that we can associate, and I certainly did, with withdrawal, with fatigue and, and lots of symptoms that are really, really common for a drug user. And so the fact that the hep C is doing the damage it is, is very difficult to pick up. So for me, when I actually reflect back now, I see through my own journey, uh, you know, once I got my SVR12, the clearance that I'd cured the hep C, and then started to have a look at how I was feeling within about six months of that, that what I'd thought was withdrawal, fatigue, perhaps slightly less methadone than I needed or slightly too much heroin. It was actually the hep C because the change was dramatic very, very quickly for me. Lots of energy came back. I realized that I wasn't quite as old as I thought I was or as damaged by the drugs as I thought I was. And so that idea that this is silently operating on you perhaps is again another bit of terminology that can be looked at because it was a huge transformation from a friend who appeared really fatigued and we all just thought oh well that's just how it is you've been you know a heroin user but actually no once he cleared he started to get these energy bursts he's just his whole approach to life changed and um you know everybody that i've worked with and myself included i've noticed that change and they all say do you know what i thought it was all the using that had created all these problems and actually it might have been the fact that the hep C was active and doing doing what it does along that journey. I think we need to change the narrative among healthcare professionals as well, really. It's not just society. It's not just people living with hep C. Um, you're absolutely right. But it's a really positive story. You've mentioned the physical, spoken very eloquently about the physical changes. What change did it make to you emotionally to know that you were cured and to have that greater energy and to know that you weren't, as you put it, as damaged by the drugs as you thought? It's been um, measurable. The first person I contacted was uh, my mother, and I was able to say to her on the phone, I've, I've cleared, I'm cured of the hep C. She'd been through the whole journey with me. We both broke down in tears. I then changed my diet. It spurred me into becoming healthier around food choices. It made remaining abstinent from uh, drugs and alcohol far easier than ever before. Yeah, it, it was a huge transformation. Yeah, emotionally, I felt a lot more balanced. I felt a lot more able to look the world in, in the eye and feel a part of rather than apart from. The stigma that has been rightly highlighted was now unavailable you know when my mind went to the fact that 
the way that I've been speaking about myself for quite a long time went to that, there was this other thing that was very apparent, which was, well, actually, it's not that anymore. There was no need to continually be mindful around my razor, my toothbrush. You know, when I had um, a cup, for instance, uh, I became extremely paranoid if anyone else was around. All that went. So emotionally, I became a lot more balanced and I became like every other human being on the planet, which I'd not felt like for a long time. Well, we're going to come back to that because it's an extraordinarily inspiring story. Was it stories like this that got you involved in viral hepatitis, Carla? Tiny stories, definitely what we've we've heard in Australia and, and again through the international literature. And I sort of stumbled into this job and was a young researcher looking for a, a job and found one in what was um, a national centre in HIV social research. And we're celebrating our 30th birthday this year. So it's, it's very exciting. We've, we've branched out into hepatitis C and STIs and, um, and, and the kind of things around all of those great, interesting parts of life. But that language that Tony used, you know, not really feeling like a part of society before, it's really deep stuff that we hear time and again in research that people have really deeply internalised the messages that they receive about the worth of the lives they're living and being cured of hep C provides a way to reframe themselves and exactly, you know, being able to not worry about being infectious to other people, to be thinking about being around for their children and their grandchildren to look at other things of life. This is what we've heard in research is that the opportunity for cure provides a a great range of other ways to engage with life that people really might not have thought about for a a very long time. I think that's really interesting because on the one hand, I absolutely recognise and indeed working in a deprived inner city practice as I have for 30 years, I absolutely recognize this idea of feeling that your life is is not of worth. But it's also been my experience that I think many people don't recognize that you can change that, that actually the, the cure, the psychological as well as the physical impact that Tony's described, just the little things that we take for granted. But clearly you've mentioned you don't just deal with hepatitis C. So tell me a little bit more about your role at the Centre for Social Research in Health, about the organisation, its goals. Yeah, so we were established, as I said, 30 years ago as part of the Australian government's response to HIV. And uh, we're a social research centre. And our ethos has always been, if you really want to understand HIV or hepatitis C, you really need to understand sex, drugs, relationship, society and how all those things fit together. So, you know, it's it's fantastic to get deep into the notion of of what is it? What is the that glue that holds society together when you're at the margins of practice and um, relationships um, compared to mainstream society? And our, our work has always, I think, focused, had a, a strong focus on um, stigma across all of the infections, across all of the settings across all of the groups of people we work with, because it is such a defining characteristic of these um, blood bomb viruses and STIs that have been our disease focus, the, the social nature of the experience, the, um, the individual, the interpersonal, the organisational, the structural stigma has been a, a key part of the investigations we've done across those 30 years and across each of the um, areas of interest. Fantastic. Kerry, I'm going to come to you. In the World Hepatitis Alliance, we've heard from Carla about her organisation and their goals. Tell me about 
your organization and, and how the goals maybe are similar or how they're different? Sure. So like I mentioned before, we were a network of patient-led organizations around the world, all fighting for a world free of viral hepatitis. Um, and we believe in harnessing the power of people living with viral hepatitis to achieve its elimination. Um, and we support our members around the world by working with them, by providing training to build their skills and ep expertise, not just to deliver services, but also to advocate to their local and national governments to ensure that hepatitis services are available to the people who need it. Um, we also support them through you know, global campaigns like World Hepatitis Day and our Find the Missing Millions campaign, you know, doing global media work, but also providing resources that they can use locally. Um, and on that global level, you know, we bring the voice of people living with viral hepatitis to the highest level through our work with the United Nations and the World Health Organization. And we work to ensure that viral hepatitis is given the priority that it requires as a global health risk. Um, and as we progress through the COVID-19 crisis, you know, that people living with viral hepatitis um, are served, that their needs are not neglected, and that we're not forgotten. Well, I'm glad you mentioned COVID. We were always going to get there eventually, but just before we do, because you're absolutely right, it's had an impact on so many people's lives, but of course, you know, marginalized groups, perhaps more than most. But Tony, let's just focus on your organization or the, the Hepatitis C Trust. Our goal is to make everyone redundant by 2030. <laughs> that's the mission statement. Good answer. <clears throat> Absolutely. And that's the truth. If you look on the website, that's the truth. I was told that when I got my contract, you know, don't expect to work here past 2030. It's really similar across the board. So we deal with residents at um, uh, institutions. So we do obviously deal with prisons. We do community centers. We do um, outreach on the bus. So we get into the marginalized areas with homeless, um, other underserved communities. And it's basically to educate, try and create and sustain up-to-date information in the areas where people are getting that information. And so the main focus is to create opportunities for peer programs. So uh, as an example, so in prison, my main focus, although it's fantastic to go in and train healthcare staff and drug strap workers, key workers, as much as I enjoy that, the thing that is my main area of focus is to find the gentlemen that are already engaging in other programs that might have had risk factors themselves, or if possible, have lived experience, and to run work, a workshop with them see if they're inspired by that and then ask them if they would like to join the peer program because nothing is more effective than a resident in an institution passing on the information, the correct information to another resident who will then consider being tested for hepatitis C. That, that's the, um, the main objective of the hepatitis C trust. So obviously I've done some training and I do bring in elements of things that I've done training for. The thing that works the most is being able to say to somebody, I have the lived experience. And um, when people say, you know, you might not know how I feel, I can actually say, well, actually, I probably do. And then disclose to them that I've had hepatitis C. I think it breaks barriers. I think the biggest thing that it does is it breaks down the barriers of trust. 
Usually people that are in institutions, as um, Carla, yourself, and um, Kerry have rightly said, feel very stigmatized. I know I did. The trust issues might be there. This is why the prisoner-to-prisoner thing works the best, or the community-peer-to-community-peer, or an ex-homeless person to a homeless person works best. Peer-to-peer programs work because it's not, there's nothing unreal about it. It's very real, it's raw, and it's truth, and it's there, and you, it's tangible. So there's that contact you described that actually... I think it's the barriers. It breaks down the barriers. It makes people feel comfortable. That thing I spoke about before, where you feel like you can look the world in the eye, you feel a part of rather than apart from. There's no more you and me, I and them. There's just two people in the room. And so we're together, in it together. It's not a delivery of education. It's um, it's not me telling you anything. It's sharing. Yeah. Well, thank you. Well, we've done some research with uh, peer programs in Australia and totally 100% um, endorse what Tony said. And an additional thing we found when we were looking at uh, how peer workers in methadone clinics work to enhance uptake of hep C treatment in that setting was definitely that peer-to-peer work, but also the impact of the peer worker on the staff of the methadone clinic and the, the bridge that that peer worker makes to be able to um, sensitively, confidentially um, translate the issues of, from the clients to the health workers' perspective. And interviewing health workers who've had the experience of working with a peer worker, they struggle to find the words, but they're sort of saying the vibe of the place has changed. The peer worker has been able to humanise the place and give us that bridge that we can connect differently to our clients than we had been able to previously. So I think the the impact of a peer worker can can ripple through an organisation to create great um, organisational and perhaps structural change where the idea where you could work with a peer worker to look at the kinds of policies that an organisation has that might further stigmatise and be able to strip away those things or explain from the patient's perspective why those policies or ways of working are difficult for clients who walk through the door. I think a peer worker can have multiple levels of impact from from working with their peers right up to kind of the way the organisation works and the policies that govern it. Really interesting, those sort of intangibles. And I'm drawn to this idea that uh, Tony was saying, you know, once he was cured, actually it wasn't just the physical, it was the fact that he no longer had to worry if he nicked himself with a razor. It was the fact that he could look the world in the eye and think, I'm not putting other people at risk and the impact that that had on self-esteem. And of course, knowing that someone else has, has made that journey. Well, Kerry, I'm going to come back to you. Does all of that resonate with you? Is the World Hepatitis Alliance doing this? Is it more focused on the sort of the bigger picture or do you use personal stories as well? It absolutely resonates. And, you know, it's stories like Tony's that really is at the heart of everything that World Hepatitis Alliance does and what we're about. You know, the stories of people living with viral hepatitis are some of the most powerful tools that we have to drive change. You know, the World Hepatitis Alliance was founded by people um, living with viral hepatitis. So it's in our DNA. You know, it's, you know, it's in the heart of what we do every day. Our president and executive board are all living with viral hepatitis. Um, and one of the conditions of membership is that organizations are led and focused on the needs of people living with viral hepatitis. So, And why it's important is that people with lived experience are the most powerful advocates we can have. You know, politicians and decision makers can find it easy to, to dismiss the call of, you know, health professionals. 
But it's much more difficult to dismiss the calls made by someone who is affected directly and could really be at risk of death because of their decisions. Um, And it's winning the hearts and minds of those decision makers, which will really make change happen. Now, talking of not being able to get treatment or not being able to get anything, COVID-19, let's start with you, perhaps, if I may, Tony. How has COVID-19 impacted the services that you offer? So we had to restructure initially. So I was taken off prison work um, about the end of March with following the government guidelines because we're an outside organisation um, and we go in to support um, healthcare and run our peer programs, they decided that we weren't classed as essential workers. So it ground to a, a major halt. When I was volunteering for the Hep C Trust myself, I was given the opportunity to work in the community and to work on the outreach bus. And so I'd already got the skill set required to jump into the community and was offered um, community work. So on an individual level, it didn't impact me as such because I carried on doing what I do just in the community and on the outreach bus. In prisons, we're facing a completely different dilemma. We've heard so many stories during lockdown of people in prison being being forgotten. Have you have you had the opportunity to to be in contact with with colleagues, with um, prisoners, with people you were working with before? Yeah. So luckily, there is an email service set up in some of the prisons. And um, so I've kept in touch with all my peers. Um, the regime has changed massively to decrease the risk of uh, the spread of COVID, which has um, is happening. So they're trying to reduce that. And I think they're taking the precautions necessary to do that. The structure of the way things are working has been massively reduced into bubbles and a certain amount of men at a time for a very, very short period of time out of the cells. So the actual possibility of them getting tested and treated um, as new patients is very minimal at the moment. Those that were on treatment have remained on treatment and that hasn't actually changed. But the actual education workshops that we were running and the peer programs and the outreach that we were running has all ground to a halt in London. It's beginning to open up in the north of the country and in the south. London are being extremely cautious as to who they're allowing in and when. I think face-to-face visits are due to restart, but it will only be one person at a time with all the guidelines to um, prevent transmission and spread of COVID. Unfortunately, my groups are going to be reduced to three people with the guidelines around social distancing. That'll be the maximum amount that I'll be able to do. But the great thing about that is that what that will do, hopefully speed things up around peer training. So rather than workshops to educate, you know, and then the longer process around, we're going to restructure the way that we do it and shorten the length of the workshop and then try and inspire peers more quicker because the delivery of the message is going to need to be from prisoners because our access to greater numbers of prisoners at once to create the information which can then be shared is going to be reduced. So having prisoners trained is going to be absolutely vital to elimination. Always assuming they get to talk to each other, which they don't as much at the moment. Yes, unfortunately. Kerry, let me come to you and ask whether that is something that's been reflected worldwide. Yeah, I mean, we did a survey in March of our members, and just about everyone said that their services had already been disrupted. You know, most people said that people were having problems accessing testing. 
at least half of our members said that people are having problems accessing treatment and that there's a real lack of information around viral hepatitis and COVID-19. But what was really incredible was hearing about how people had adapted their services and the work that they did in order to meet these new needs and overcome these new challenges to serve their communities. You know, whether that was, you know, getting on a motorbike and delivering medications to rural areas and places where the hospitals were closed or off limits because of COVID-19, um, whether that was changing their delivery models so they could now do counseling and support, you know, by the internet. And one organization even bought mobile phones for for some of their clients so they could ensure that they were still going to be able to keep in contact and to you know provide the support that they really needed. And it's that kind of resilience that I think community organizations are known for in a crisis. And there is also like a really big crossover between COVID-19 and hepatitis in terms of the communities most affected. So hepatitis organizations were not only meeting the needs of their communities in terms of hepatitis, but also in terms of the COVID crisis around, you know, providing meals or providing other kinds of support. So I think there's a real opportunity going forward for um, for hepatitis organizations to really play a leading role in the COVID response and really serve the, you know, the wider views of their communities. Carla, clearly we go back to this idea of marginalized groups and hard to reach groups, but as Kerry has already pointed out, these tend to be the very groups who are most affected by COVID. How's COVID impacted the communities you work with? Yeah, just today I was on a, a teleconference with a network of services I'm working with around program, wonderful program called Deadly Liver Mob, and this is targeting Aboriginal people with and at risk of hepatitis C. And, and deadly means really good. Um, in in Aboriginal parlance, not not bad, really super great. So deadly liver mob is about you know a really good program for your liver, and um, this was a, a peer led with Aboriginal workers at the front door, incentivised with vouchers, and across the state from inner city right to the very remote areas that all of these services have been impacted with the idea that they that it's difficult to attract people to come into services at the moment. And there are clear guidelines about how to work with Aboriginal communities and the really major need to protect Aboriginal communities from COVID entering their their communities. So again, the innovation that Kerry talked about where services are, are taking their fold-up chairs and um, going out to parks and other services where people are and maintaining distance and delivering what's needed in in very different ways, and it's it's incredibly um, inspiring and cool to witness how people are the workers in these services are just so dedicated to getting out what they need to do, but totally rethinking how they have to do it and putting the the needs and the safety of marginalised communities right at the front of that, and working with um, local groups to understand how best to do it so that it works for them. It's, you know, someone stuck in a research office, we don't often get the opportunity to witness these kinds of things. And it's it's really amazing to see what energy and innovation is out there, even though my research office is my garage at the moment. But, you know, it's, it's what we're all doing. <laughs> well, I have to say, I was very envious when I first saw you and thought that you were actually sitting on a veranda somewhere with Botany Bay in the background. <laughs> but it, it's, it's good to know that, like everybody else, you're working from your garage. <laughs> yes, We've all been affected. Right by COVID. But unfortunately, of course, for some of us, you know, working from your garage is a, an inconvenience, but hey, it's an inconvenience. What we need to remember is that 
for the very people who have the greatest need, the changes uh, have been the greatest for the worst. But let's try and end on a positive note, because I think it's been amazing to hear how all of you have given some positive, and you've immediately turned my question about how COVID's affected your services, how they've affected communities into what you've done for the better. So Tony, you talked, for instance, about the peer support. So I'm going to ask each of you just before we end, whether there are any key learnings from your work during COVID-19 that other people can take forward. Tony, let's come to you first, if I may. So as I said, so our charity restructured for um, the prison team because we weren't able to go into prison. And we got opportunities to go out into the community, um, obviously with PPE and safe practice. And I think one of the key things that I learned from COVID was that there was never any homelessness in London. There was just people that were being left out on the street because all of a sudden they got housed into all the hostels and all the empty spaces that were available. And what that gave us was an absolutely amazing opportunity. So, you know, I've been fortunate to be a part of the test and treat team. So all of a sudden we had this huge amount of what would normally be a marginalised group spread out all over London in the hotels and hostels. We had testing stations set up. Just like Carla just said, we just rocked up with the fibre scan, the um, ability to take bloods, and the dry blood spot testings and the the genotyping machine um, that gives you a result within an hour. And so we just rocked up and stayed from eight o'clock in the morning till whenever we needed to and, and did what we do. We set up testing stations and all of a sudden we were able to help lots of people that are very difficult to find one day to the next. So it showed me that anything's possible and that, you know, sometimes the greatest achievement comes out of something that can appear to be having the greatest impact. You know, we found people, we tested them, and we've treated some of them, and we've explained the need for harm minimization to those that chose it, you know, not to be treated at this time. I think it's been a fantastic opportunity. Carla, beat that for inspirational. Oh, I don't know. I don't sure I've got <laughs> anything that comes close to that, but you know, I've been really inspired by my research colleagues quickly turning their their methods around and and being creative in ways that they can shift their work into different ways. And we were always planning to do this bit of work online. We were we've just finished an intervention study to try to reduce the general public's expression of stigma towards vulnerable groups, including people living with hepatitis C. And uh, Maybe um, COVID made our recruitment a lot easier because people seem to have a lot of time to be online and do our silly surveys. So we got a great response, really met our targets very easily because people were at home looking for something to do, perhaps. So the future of online research is bright. (laughs) Gary, what about you? There definitely are. I mean, as I said before, you know, the resilience and creativity of the hepatitis community was really staggering. It just goes to show the power of community organizations. You know, when, you know, when they close the door, we kick open a window and we find a way to serve our communities because, you know, they're not just our clients, you know, they're our neighbors, they're our friends, they're our loved ones. So we're always going to find a way to do the best for them. And most hepatitis organizations are small organizations often with very little funding, but they still found a way, you know, to deliver medicines, to offer testing, to offer peer support. And it just kind of goes to show that when you have determination, great things can happen. And I think in terms of like health systems or governments, 
I mean, we all saw in the face of the COVID crisis how quickly things could change, right? How quickly funds could be raised, how quickly, you know, services could be adapted to meet the needs of a health crisis. So I think we really need to take those learnings forward when, we, when we're talking about hepatitis elimination and really push that, you know, that these changes are possible, that money can be found, and we really can change the lives of the millions of people around with hepatitis C that really need it. Well, speaking of lessons, it has been a real inspiration and a privilege to me. And I genuinely hope that all of you listening have really enjoyed it. From my perspective, it's all been noteworthy. But I think maybe three particular comments from you, Kerry, that comment about close the door and you kick open a window. I like that a lot and I may well use it. And of course, under normal circumstances, Gala's comment about the deadly liver mob would have made it right up there at the top of the list. But there's no question from my perspective who the winner is here in terms of our contributors, not just for his extraordinarily honest and really inspiring story, but particularly for sharing with us the aim of his organisation to make everybody who works at the Hepatitis C Trust redundant by 2030. So thank you so much, Carla, Carrie, Tony, for sharing your stories with us as we tackle the big questions of how we can reach some of society's most vulnerable populations and engage them in healthcare services. And of course, thank you all for listening. But there is more to come. Please tune into our next episode and we'll discuss the importance of testing. It's an issue we touched on today, but there is much, much more. We'll continue to meet people on the front line who are fighting this Perhaps silent killer, but as Tony has said, maybe not quite as silent as we thought. We just don't recognize this unrecognized killer. And we'll be exploring how we can together make hepatitis C elimination a reality and genuinely make Tony redundant by 2030. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the Hepcast. And you can also leave a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts so others can find the show. Thank you from me, Sarah Jarvis. And of course, thank you to our guests. Carla, Tony and Kerry, and to you most of all for listening. The Hepcast is a collaboration between the World Hepatitis Alliance and Gilead Sciences Europe Limited. The Hepcast is fully funded by Gilead Sciences Europe Limited.